First Timothy chapter one, verses three through seven. This is the word of God. So I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Amen. Father God, we look to your word. We pray that uh, as we study it this morning in a systematic fashion that you would uh, be pleased uh, to illumine our minds and to quicken our consciences, that you would uh, enable us to grow in our ability to serve and to glorify you. We pray that you would anoint uh, my lips and keep me from error, enable me to faithfully preach your word and for us to be receivers and doers of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you want to follow on the outline... Um, there are outlines on the back table. It's rather of um, a detailed outline, so if you want to follow along, you, you may want to pick a copy of that up. Uh, one of the uh, sites where you may find some unusual things is at irs.gov. It's the IRS's uh, website. And there's a little section in there on financial statements that describes gifts that people actually voluntarily give to the IRS. I was flabbergasted. I'd never heard of such a thing that there's a charitable, charitable donation to uh, the IRS. And apparently last year, um, there was over $4 million that was contributed. Now, what caught my eye was a couple lines above that was a little um, a fund that was called the Conscience Fund. And last year, the IRS collected $184,668.56 payments, and they ranged anywhere from $54.17 to several thousand dollars. But these were from people who had cheated the IRS, and they, their conscience just bothered them, and so they anonymously sent in some money that hadn't been otherwise earmarked, and so they decided to put it into a conscience fund. And uh, uh, it was something, since I'm preaching on the conscious, I decided I want to do a little research, spend about 10 minutes uh, looking at this a couple of weeks ago, and uh, find out where it started. It started in 1811 when a New York man sent in six bucks and said that he was, quote, suffering the most painful pangs of conscience, unquote. Now, I don't know how many of you have been tortured by your conscience uh, inwardly, but you know how it just cannot let you rest until you do, however trivial or however great it may be, that the conscience can really bother uh, people tremendously. And it's got to be painful, you know, to voluntarily contribute to the IRS. Uh, it, to me, that's a sign of a really pained conscience. Uh, they gave some of the letters uh, on the IRS uh, site that had accompanied these um, uh, conscience donations. Uh, one said, now I will sleep better. Another said, I've just got a terribly troubled conscience. Uh, one misguided person wrote, I'd hate to burn in hell for a couple of bucks. Uh, probably wasted bucks sending it to the IRS. But anyway... Many people have experienced this. It just drives them crazy. They even realize in their minds, this is such a small thing, how come my conscience is making such a big deal about it? Let me give you another example of a troubled conscience. In the White House collection, there's a letter from a child to President Cleveland, written in September 1895, and it says this, To His Majesty, President Cleveland, Dear President, I'm in a dreadful state of mind, and I thought that I would write and tell you all. About two years ago, as near as I can remember, it's two years, I used two postage stamps that had been used before on letters, perhaps more than twice. I did not realize what I had done until lately. My mind is constantly turning on that subject, and I think of it night and day. Now, dear President, will you please forgive me? And I promise I will never do it again. Enclosed, find cost of three stamps, and please forgive me. 
for I was but thirteen years old, for I am heartily sorry for what I have done from one of your subjects. <laughs> and I was really touched by that letter uh, that was given there, and some people might think, oh, that's just being overly nitpicky, but when we look later at how to gain a clear conscience, and some people are just just in agony over that. They confess, they, they think that they've done everything that they can to get a clear conscience, and their conscience is still troubled. I want you to be thinking back onto what this child has done to try to just clear the slate completely. Now, there's all kinds of errors and extremes on the subject of the conscience that we've looked at over several weeks, and uh, uh, some people have been so troubled by it that they consider the conscience to be a part of the curse. They just cannot imagine anything useful that could come out of it. And uh, other people uh, are just not troubled by their conscience at all. It doesn't seem to even work in them. But we saw in our first sermon that the conscience is not a part of the curse. It was given to Adam and Eve before that there was a fall. In fact, they would not be able to make any moral judgments if all of the essentials of the conscience were not in place already uh, within their hearts. And so... This is part of the image of God, and when, when people try to dull their conscience, like psychologists and uh, psychiatrists, many times they will go through a routine of desensitizing the conscience. What they're actually doing is de they're destroying part of the image of God in man. We saw that's not the way uh, to deal uh, with the conscience. Uh, we liken the conscience to a faulty light that's on the dashboard of your car. Sometimes it's coming on, you check and check, and there's nothing wrong with the car, and other times it fails to come on, and your engine seizes up, you know, where it's supposed to be coming on, it doesn't. But just because the conscience, or because that light on the dashboard is not working, does not mean you smash it, you destroy it. No, you realign it, you get it fixed, you put a light into it if there's no light that's there. Now, we saw that there are three parts to the conscience. There's the legislative, there's the judicial, and there's the executive part. And those correspond to the sense of law that God has placed within every man, woman, and child, uh, to the ability to judge all of our actions, and then to the executive part, the, you know, the sense of pain or discomfort that we feel. Now, a lot of people think of the legislature, you know, like the American legislature, as a place where you just make up laws. And James says, no, you're not allowed to do that. Uh, you're supposed to submit to God's law. There is one law and one judge, one Lord of your conscience, and it's not man, it's God. And so if your conscience makes you feel like you've broken an ethical standard, you need to ask the question, well, whose ethical standard has been violated? Is it man's standard or is it God's standard? Um, God's uh, standard is something that needs to govern our hearts, but many times we are governed by a social conscience. And the moment that we begin submitting to the laws of man as binding the conscience, we develop what is called a social conscience. Social conscience is a conscience, okay, that's not troubled at all, if everybody else is doing the sin that, that we're doing. But it can be very much troubled or very much ashamed over things that the Bible says are perfectly all right if they find judgment from man. So it becomes very, very sensitive to the approval or the disapproval of man. And we saw since the conscience can't serve two masters, to the degree that it's sensitive to men's approval, to that degree it's insensitive to God's approval or disapproval. Okay, so it's, it's very important that uh, we, we deal with these areas. All three of those areas have been marred by the fall. They've been affected by sin, and they're not automatically going to function like they should. So, um, we gave a number of applications. One of the applications was that when you are training your children, you're disciplining your children, make sure you bring God's Word to bear in their lives. That it's not just do it because mom and dad say to do it. You, you need to direct their conscience in a Godward direction. Otherwise, you're going to be more and more developing a social conscience rather than a, a godly one. And by the way, it's one of the reasons why Mark Twain was able to poke so much fun at the conscience. If you read through his books, you'll see he does that all the time. It's because our consciences can be subject to the most bizarre things uh, 
when it's man's approval or disapproval that they're looking, looking for. So when you multiply legal codes, it's going to begin to be disoriented and confused. Now, the same is true of judgment. Romans tells us that our consciences always do one of two things for every action you engage in. Your conscience will either excuse you or accuse you. Okay, so that's a judge within you that is functioning to either acquit you as not guilty or to condemn you as being guilty. And you cannot get away from that judge acting in that way. It's always going to act according to a standard. And if it's not God's standard, there's going to be some standard that's out there. Whether you like it or not, it's going to be developing. It'll make up laws or it'll, by osmosis, develop standards that are taken from, uh, from outside. And so when your conscience feels judged by a sermon that I preach, you need to ask, is this simply Phil Kaiser that is judging me? Or is it the word of God that is judging me? You know, the Westminster Standards say that nothing but God speaking in the scriptures can be the judge of your conscience. Very, very important. Now, we looked at the third part of the conscience, a sense of shame or approval, pain or peace, guilt or satisfaction, fear or confidence. And we saw that it's really meaningless to say that your conscience feels quite okay. You know, I don't feel convicted about this. Well, that's a meaningless statement because you need to ask, do you have peace uh, because your, your, your conscience is aligned toward man or it's aligned toward God? Does it live in the fear of God or does it live in the fear of man? And we saw in one of the earlier sermons that the conscience is quite capable of feeling at peace with evil and quite capable of feeling terribly shamed over things that Scripture says are wonderful, are good things. And perhaps you've uh, uh, felt shame over things that God says are wonderful. That means you need to work on your conscience. And we gave some rather bizarre examples of false shame and false peace, and even mild ones cannot be ignored. And so the upshot of it is you must not treat your conscience as being the voice of God. Okay, it's not a reliable tool. Now, it is a tool that is used by God, but it can also be used by Satan. It can be used by man. And so don't automatically assume, just because you feel a conviction within, that it's coming from God. Your conscience is just operating in terms of some standard. You've got to find out, is it godly standard? Is it an ungodly standard? Now, today, in your outlines, we're picking up on page 6, point C. It's the benefits of having a healthy conscience. And there's a sense in which we've covered some of these already. But let me quickly give a few more. And we're just going to have to blaze through this outline. I, I've spent too much time on this conscience series already, I think. So I want to finish the outline this morning. So you, you can see we're going to be going through it rather quickly. Page 6, point C. And if you want another verse in there, I was kind of... Uh, hurried in putting the outline together, but Galatians 5.1 would be another one under point one. 1 Corinthians 10, 29 through 31 gives the first benefit, freedom from legalism. Freedom from legalism. It says, why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What it is saying is when we quit doing something or we begin to engage in something uh, for reasons of being judged by other people, you are not glorifying God. What you are doing is you are glorying in man's approval. But the key phrase that I want to look at is, why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? When you have a healthy conscience that is aligned to God and to God's word, you no longer feel stressed out when other people don't approve of your actions. You know, they can tell you that you're living in sin, they can tell you all kinds of things, but it's just not going to bother you because your conscience feels the approval of God and God's word. Now, wouldn't it be a wonderful place if you could just be totally freed from legalism? I think all of us, from time to time, succumb. I mean, even the Apostle Peter did, right? He succumbed to the approval and the fear of man. But what a wonderful benefit. Really tremendous. It makes the uh, efforts at developing your conscience worthwhile. Second benefit, acceleration of your maturity. 
Hebrews 5 says, Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. He says, I keep having to go over the same things over and over because your conscience won't let you mature. He goes on, he says, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God. He says when, when you don't have a developed conscience, you're going to constantly be in immaturity. And so there's a connection between points one and point two. But he says, if you develop a good conscience, it is going to accelerate the degree and the rate at which you grow in maturity in Christ. Next benefit, in fact, why don't you turn to, with me to 1 John 3. Next benefit is confidence in prayer. I'm not going to look at the Hebrews 10.1, but that's very similar. It says we can have confidence in going boldly before the throne of grace in our prayer life. But look at 1 John 3, and uh, beginning to read at verses 20 through 22. <clears throat> For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts, uh, heart and knows all things. Now he's speaking there of God's gracious dealings with people who have a hypersensitive conscience, but he's saying, I want you to get beyond there. There's a benefit to getting beyond that. Verse 21. He says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. He says, if your heart doesn't condemn you, he says, your prayers are going to be answered. That's a tremendous benefit, confidence in prayer life. Now, what about witness? I'm not even going to take the time to look at the scriptures that are there. All you have to do is look at the scriptures we've taken in the past uh, uh, several weeks, and you'll see that when your conscience is aligned toward the approval or the disapproval of other people, what's it going to do to your witness? It's going to mess it up. You're not going to want to witness because you're constantly going to be asking, well, you know, what are they going to think? That I'm a religious fanatic? Are they going to disapprove of what I'm saying? Am I going to lose a friend? You know, I, I want their approval. And so it's going to interfere with the, the, the witnessing that God calls us to do. Paul in Galatians 1.10 says, If I still sought to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. That, that, that's powerful words. He's saying, there's just no way I could do the kind of service to the Lord that I'm having to do if I was trying to please men. Why? Because the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit. He doesn't like the Scriptures. And so I would be constantly looking for their approval and as a result compromising the Scriptures. You cannot uh, be a servant of Christ and also be seeking to please man. And I list a couple of other benefits there. Serving with joy rather than guilt. I think that's a big one. Uh, Nehemiah 8.5 calls the people away from guilt and into joy. And he says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Uh, guilt motivates, but it's kind of a lousy motivator because it leaves you anxious. Joy, on the ha other hand, tremendous motivator. And point six, peace, freedom, and joy before the Lord. And you can study those for yourself. But I just wanted to point out, there's benefits. It's worthwhile working on your conscience like, uh, like Paul did. Now, what I want to do, concentrate on in the remainder of this sermon, is looking at the method for developing a good conscience. And uh, we're going to whiz through this. What's the first thing? You need to do when you're thinking of developing a conscience. Well, you need to look to the Lord. Jeremiah tells us the, uh, the, the man's heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? We can't even understand our own hearts. And so we need the Lord to give his illumination. We need his spirit. We need his strength. He alone can conquer the heart. He alone can truly understand the heart. And so we're not doing it just for what we can get out of it. In other words, to get peace in our lives. Yes, that's a side benefit, but we need to do it for his glory and by his strength. And so pray. Pray specifically that God would cleanse it. Hebrews 9.14 tells us that the blood of Christ can cleanse the conscience from legalism. 
So we need to apply the blood of Christ. Tell the Lord, Lord, my conscience is legalistic. It is so bound up with the fear of man. And I apply the blood of Jesus Christ to it. And I pray that you would cleanse it, that you would renew it and uh, give to it a sensitivity to your law. You know, when David realized how hardened his conscience had become with the adultery affair, uh, he, was, he was just shocked at how far he had gone. And he cried out, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Psalm 139, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. So we need to ask God to do it because uh, uh, we don't even begin to understand our hearts many times. Ask next that God would make your heart sincere and without pretense. That's the prayer of Philippians 1 and verse 10. Now, let me just explain that. If your conscience is trying to please Dick, Jane, and Harry and they're in conflict with each other, your conscience, because it cannot serve multiple masters, is going to feel a great deal of tension around these people. And so in order to survive, your conscience is going to have to pretend to be something with Jane that's different than when you're with Dick. And it begins to develop hiding techniques, and it begins to develop a pretense. But... If your conscience is captured by the Lord Jesus Christ, then there can be a sincerity and there can be a simplicity about your conscience that is not otherwise available. And so you don't need to hide the, the, you know, the beer or the cigar when the legalist comes in. Uh, you can drink to God's glory because Christ did. You know, it's not anything that the Scripture condemns. Your conscience is not oriented to what people uh, think. That's why 2 Corinthians 11.3 speaks of the simplicity which is in Christ. It can only be found in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.12 says, The testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity by the grace of God. Okay, it's only God's grace that is going to enable your conscience to have simplicity and sincerity. If it's approving, going by the approval of men, there's always going to be pretense at some point or another. Okay? Now, let's uh, look at the next point. Fourth, ask God that he would orient the conscience entirely to him. Um, and you're probably going to have to pray that daily. Acts 23.1 speaks of a conscience before God. 2 Corinthians 4.2, a conscience in the sight of God. Hebrews 9.14, a conscience that serves God. So it's got to be reoriented toward God by his grace. And then finally, we need to pray that God would make it more and more reliable, that it would understand his laws by his illumination, that it would judge rightly, that it would feel rightly. Now, the reason I started with this first point here is because there's a tendency for us to just dive into the how-to list. Okay, what are the things I need to begin doing? And we depend upon our own strength, not upon the Lord. We got to realize we cannot have a pure conscience unless God enables us to have it. So that's why we're starting there. But if you uh, take a look at the top of page 7, you'll see that you need to work at having a good conscience as well. You can't just let go and let God, you know, the, the passive Christianity idea that some people have had, utterly unbiblical. Acts 24, 16 says, I myself always strive to have a conscience void of offense. Strive means I work at it. I'm always working at having a conscience that is void of offense. Now, when was the last time you worked on your conscience? I think we work on a lot of other things. David, I mean, Paul did it daily, he said. He was always doing it. When was the last time that you worked on your conscience? Every day, you know, you brush your hair and comb your teeth and uh, do other bodily uh, exercises, right? You take care of your body. Well, what about spiritual hygiene? You need to be looking at your, uh, your, your conscience as well and beginning to develop a program of self-analysis and saying, Lord, is my conscience becoming pure and sensitive to your law? Um, here's a 
a, uh, a routine of spiritual hygiene that you can engage in. Point A, if your conscience has become too sensitive to man's approval and to legalism, you need to retrain it, and that's not going to happen overnight. Hebrews 5.14 tells us that we must use the conscience and exercise its senses so that we may be able to discern both good and evil. And he's deliberately using a sports term of the importance of training. Okay, we're, there's a training program we have to go through. And here's a regimen of uh, training, eight steps that you can have for your training program. I think the first one's pretty obvious, teach it biblical law. The reason that Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 that he needed to teach doctrine is so that the conscience could be pure. He could develop a good conscience. Your conscience is always going to be picking up a standard. Whether you like it or not, it is going to pick up a standard by osmosis from out there if it's not from the Bible. And so you've got to give the judge inside some material to work from. You've got to constantly be studying the Scriptures. Now let's just assume that you have guilt over something that the Bible says that you should... Uh, be rejoicing over, and somebody tells you, no, this is a liberty that the Scripture gives. You thought it was a sin. What you need to immediately do is to go to the Scripture and start studying it out. And when you discover, well, lo and behold, the Scripture does give this liberty, then you instruct your conscience. You say, conscience, you talk to yourself, this is a liberty that we have. You begin to train yourself. Proverbs one twenty nine says, if you hate knowledge, you're never going to be able to develop God's not going to answer your prayers. Okay, second, avoid the legalistic teachings of others. If there are people who are continually condemning what God praises or they're continually praising or approving of what God condemns, you need to turn off the radio. You need to stop listening to that garbage because it will affect your conscience. Isaiah tells us, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. That's not in your outlines, but Isaiah 8, verse 20. That's got to be the touchstone. Legalism is dangerous to the soul. Now, the, the passage I read in 1 Timothy um, uh, uh, speaks of the role of teaching doctrine, but also the, 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 the importance of avoiding legalism. Let me read that for you again. As I urged you when you went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Okay, that's step one. Nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. There's step two. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from sincere faith. That's step three. From which some having strayed have turned aside to idle talk, etc. Now the third step is to determine to please God in absolutely everything that you do. And again, you've got to ask God what pleases him. You've got to look in the scripture. Uh, don't be like the seminary student that uh, uh, came into a circle of friends that we were uh, discussing things with. And as soon as he heard the subject we were talking about, very literally, he put his hands over his ears and he ran out of the room and he says, I don't want to hear about that. And... Uh, uh, that's not sincerity, okay? He, he didn't want to hear about it because he thought he'd be convicted and he'd have to change his behavior. But he felt he wouldn't be responsible. In fact, he said he wouldn't be responsible, which is wrong, uh, if he didn't know what the law was. So there has to be a willingness to hear what God wants us to do. The fourth step is to repent of your legalism. Now, some people find this as a shocker. They say, well, isn't this a liberty? Why do I have to repent of what I'm doing? And the response is, yes, it is a liberty. Let's say it's wearing makeup or not wearing makeup, drinking wine or not drinking wine. You don't have to do those things. It's a liberty, right? But some people don't abstain from the doing of it because it's a liberty. The reason that they are abstaining is because their conscience is still bound by the opinion of their parents or their friends or some associates that are out there, and it troubles them so greatly that... That's the reason they're not going to do it. They use the excuse that it's a liberty, but what they're doing is they're defacing their conscience by allowing man to judge their conscience. Do you see that there? Christ calls it sin. Legalism is sin. Adding to the scripture is sin, according to Mark chapter 7, and we dealt with that at some length. 
So just tell the Lord, Lord, I'm feeling guilty over things that I know your Bible praises. Please forgive me of that. It is a sin, and I want it to be covered with the blood of Christ. Fifth, determine to never bind another person's conscience with anything but the Bible. Uh, You may not have liberty over it yet, and you may not be at a place where Scripture says you can take that liberty, but make sure that you don't bind somebody else's conscience with the scruples you're going through, because you know what happens when you do? Uh, Instead of becoming a weaker brother... 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, says you've become a Pharisee. You've become a teacher of that which is wrong. And Romans 14, verse 1, you'll remember, says you can re- you, you're to receive a weak brother in the faith, you're re- to receive him, but not to disputes over doubtful things. And so if he becomes disputatious, if he begins to teach it, he's no longer a weaker brother, he's a Pharisee. So make sure you do not impose the legalism that your conscience uh, has upon other people. Now, the Pharisees said, hey, we're just playing it safe. You know, we're putting extra laws around the law like a fence around the law because we don't want anybody breaking the law. And Christ didn't treat it that way. He said, when you add laws to the scripture, what you're doing is you are making yourself the authority. You're putting your place in the place of God, which diminishes the authority of God's word. If men can make laws, then God's laws are diminished. So he didn't treat it very kindly at all. Fifth, no, sixth, we've already done fifth. If you've done all of that, and if your conscience is still giving you fits, you know, you've instructed it, you're, you know, you're recognizing that it's legalism, but you're still finding your conscience bothering you a lot, Try this. Begin thanking God for the liberties that other people have. You can't engage in them yet because your conscience is not letting you. But Romans 14.3 says, Let him who does not eat judge him who eats. Let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. And then down in verse 22, God tells the weaker brother, Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. So he's telling the weaker brothers, Okay, I know that your conscience is not happy over this. Your conscience is still troubled. But realize, these people are approved by God. They're happy in their liberty. And what you can do is you can start thanking God for the liberties that they have. Now you might think, well, that's not much of a point. Let me tell you, this is one of the most powerful points in terms of changing your conscience. Uh, some of the people who have been so troubled over things you would say, well, no, that's not a sin in the Scripture, but their conscience is just, just horribly troubled over it. They need to start thanking God. And there is a, what it's doing is it's hitting up that conscience from every direction, realigning it, and it's emotionally undergirding the conscience and saying, okay, I can take active action now without violating the conscience. I can thank God even though I'm not partaking, that other people can partake. Okay, does that make sense? Uh, That is a very important step. Do not neglect it. Step seven, after doing that, uh, you may want to spend some time meditating on God's desire for your freedom. A great passage to meditate on might be Galatians 5.1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And you just pray to the Lord, meditate on that, say, Lord, you know, I, I thank you that you have called us to liberty, and I don't want to be in bondage. Christ has purchased this liberty. It's a great gift from your hand, and I want to treat it as being a great gift. Or John 8, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you say to the Lord, Lord, I want to abide in your word, not in the word of man. I want to be your disciple. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And so you pray to the Lord, Lord, I want to be your disciple. I want to be free. I want to enter into the liberty that your truth was designed to give. And I'm meditating upon this. And I pray that your word would do its sanctifying work within my heart and purifying and changing me. Now, if none of that is helping... Uh, You may have to go back over and over again and pray to the Lord, Lord, change me. Take away the fear of man. Work within me. Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man brings a snare. Lord, take away my social conscience. 
Uh, Galatians 1.10, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a servant of Christ. And he was speaking of the Judaizing legalism that the apostle Peter had fallen into, temporarily. If it could happen to him, it could happen to any one of us. And so ask God to take away this approval, this desire to be approved. Now, before I, I move on, let me point out that if doing what your conscience tells you to do or tells you not to do, if that would involve you in sin, you don't have the leisure of going through this process slowly. Uh, I read in the World Herald quite a, a while back that there was this um, guy who thought that God had told him to kill his son, like uh, God had told uh, Abraham uh, to do. And in a case like that, I would point to the fact that we've got a closed canon and the Lord no longer uh, gives any additional revelation like that of that sort. And I would tell this person, you need to violate your conscience first and I will instruct it later. Or there are other uh, examples. For example, people who are married who feel that conjugal relations are sinful and uh, who have not engaged in any for years. What you'd need to do is say, no, here is the scripture. It's clear as could be that you're in violation of the scripture. You need to begin entering into the obedience of the scripture, and we're going to work on changing your conscience so that the feelings line up with God's word. So if it's sin, it, what, what Paul was talking about were liberties. It really doesn't matter. If you wear makeup, don't wear makeup. If you drink wine, don't drink wine. That's not a big issue until, while you're working on changing your conscience. The other issues... Boy, you've got you to gotta speed the process up. So that's just a quick caveat. Now let's say your conscience has the exact opposite problem. You don't have a hypersensitive conscience. You don't have a conscience. Well, you do. But it's very, very hardened through rationalizations. What do you do there? Well, you need to resensitize it. And I've given seven steps on how to do that. And the first step is to... Determine ahead of time to obey God in all that he has already shown you in his word. John 7, verse 17 says, If anyone wants to do his will, he doesn't say if anybody's perfect. He says, If anyone wants to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. But God's not in the business of giving spiritual illumination to people who aren't, have no intention of obeying it. Okay? He gives it to people who already are pre-committed. They've, they've got a check there. They've already signed the check. Say, Lord, just fill it in. Show me from the scripture what you, you've done. I've already committed myself ahead of time, no matter how hard it is. I want to follow after your word. When you've got that kind of an attitude, God's going to be serious about taking away the confusion from your conscience. And, uh, you know, that, that conversation that I had earlier, you know, I asked that guy, uh, the seminarian, why in the world? He would not want to know. He said that I'm not responsible. I said, yeah, you are responsible. Uh, you're responsible if you break, you know, civil law, even if you don't know it. You can't just plead uh, ignorance. But he said he didn't want to have to change his behavior. And so already he had an attitude of disobedience even before he knew what the law was going to say. And I don't even know if it was different than what he... Uh, it may not have been any different what the Bible said than what he was doing. But his attitude was, I don't care, you know, I just don't want to know because it might make me uncomfortable. Our attitude should be, Lord, whatever you want, I'll do. Psalm 25, 14, the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him and he will show them his covenant. So he says, you fear the Lord, he'll open up your understanding, he'll let you into the secrets of his covenant love. And that 2 Peter 1, 5 through 11, powerful passage that shows how this is so important to our maturity and to, to growth in this area. Second, nurture a desire for a clean conscience, and that can come just through, <clears throat> as I say in the outline, I'm meditating on the negative results of a bad conscience, the wonderful benefits of a good conscience. Third, develop the fear of God. And this actually is worth a sermon all on its own, but I'm just going to quickly go through it as well. I've discovered six principles that promote fear, and uh, obviously the first is we need to go to the Lord and ask him. He's the one that gives the fear of the Lord, and so we need to ask him, Lord, I have lived too much in the fear of man. Please give me the fear of you that will wash away and cleanse away this fear of man. 
and it's worthwhile. You know, Scripture says uh, the, uh, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if you want to remain stupid all your life, don't pray this prayer. But he says, no, you've got to have that to begin in wisdom. Psalm 2.11 says, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. Okay, so we're talking about real fear, trembling before the Lord, and yet there's rejoicing that's consistent with that. Psalm, I mean, Proverbs 28.14, happy is the man that fears always. Does that seem like a contradiction? Well, it absolutely is not. And uh, there's a fabulous book that uh, Ken Howell uh, uh, has that uh, deals with the fear of the Lord and developing that. Psalm 31:19, How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. Psalm 115:13 promises he will bless those who fear the Lord. So it's definitely worthwhile to develop the fear of the Lord, but it's grace. It's grace alone that's going to enable you to do that. Hebrews 12:28, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So ask. Second, treat God's word with reverence, awe, and respect. You know, don't be just throwing your Bible on the... Uh, on the floor and, and treating it non-reverentially. When you read the Bible, come with expectation. that This is a powerful, powerful dark document. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Uh, God's Word can slice through into our lives. It can be a, a hammer that pounds and breaks into pieces. It can be oil that heals. It can be a fire. It can be water. But God's Word is God himself speaking. And as we come, we need to come reverentially. Let me tell you, as you develop an awe, a reverence, a trembling at his word, you're going to develop a fear of God. In fact, that, that's a phrase that's used here. Isaiah 66, 2, he promises favor upon the one who trembles at my word. Okay, so that's the first, second step. Read it often. I give two passages under C in Deuteronomy that admonishes regular reading of God's word. In fact, the kings of Israel were supposed to write out the Pentateuch uh, every year by hand. They were to write it out, it says, so that they can learn to fear the Lord. So regular reading of the, of the word develops fear. Um, point D, recognize God's disciplines in your life. I think the more that we begin to recognize that a sprained ankle, a financial loss, or other painful events in our lives are God's disciplines, uh, the more that we're going to begin to realize, whoa, you know, God's actively working in my life. He's disciplining me. And Hebrews tells us that discipline is designed to bring uh, a fear, reverential trembling at, um, uh, at, at God. Meditate on God's powerful providence. Point E. 1 Samuel 12 shows how people trembled when they heard God's thunder and his uh, rain that was destroying the crops. They began to realize, hey, there's cause and effect. This is a discipline that comes from God's hand. God controls this world. Jeremiah 5.24 shows an understanding of God's control of weather can produce a fear of God. Um, I love the hymn, How Great Thou Art. You know, oh Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder. And he's going through all of the different aspects of creation. Now it's causing jubilation within him because he's realizing the God who controls all of these things in nature is on my side. But the flip side is, if I get God angry, <laughs> he can cause all of those things to work against me as well. You look at the Grand Canyon. You know, it ought to cause you to just stand in awe at God's power, his might, his judgment. I think it's an evidence of his judgment in the flood. Point F, reverence those who are in authority over you. There is a direct relationship between reverence to authorities and reverence to God. And that's why 1 Peter 2.17 says, fear God, fear the king. The two are bound tightly together you begin to lack fear and reverence for authorities, you're going to lack reverence and fear for God. Uh, you lack reverence and fear for your parents. You're not going to have a fear for God. And that's one of the reasons you parents need to make absolutely certain that your children respect you. The highest discipline needs to be reserved for children who rebel or who show lack of respect for their parents because if they don't have it there, they're not going to have a fear for God. 
If they don't respect the pastor, the elders, or those who are elders to them, they will, uh, to that degree, not have fear of God. The fourth step is uh, resensitizing your conscience. By the way, that's not simply, that's not a fear of their opinion. It's a respect for their position. Okay? Why? Because it's an authority position under God. But the fourth step is resensitizing your conscience. This is the top of page 8. Resensitizing your conscience by vigorously opposing all rationalization of sin. Romans speaks of consciences being hardened because we excuse ourselves. Now, that's scary, because isn't that one of the most natural things in human nature? We excuse ourselves. He says you're going to harden your conscience if you continually excuse yourself, and there's all kinds of creative ways in which we do that. Um, Romans mentions that we do it by outright denial, which is a form of lying, by suppressing and not wanting to think about that sin. You know, we just keep putting it out of our mind. Or by blame shifting. And I want to focus a little bit on the blame shifting because I I think it's just a pernicious evil. Uh, And some people are quite adept at it. If they can keep themselves incensed at somebody else's problem, then it takes the focus off of their own uh, sin that they've they've committed. Some people are just so good at this. Um, Uh, in blame shifting. I've known people who have uh, done an incredible evil against somebody else, and when they were confronted about it, they immediately went on the attack, bringing up some supposed, maybe even invented slight from a year ago. These people are so intimidated, they'll never confront a person like that. Well, there's a sense in which they have won, but you know what they've done? They're losing because they're hardening their conscience uh, by, by this rationalization. And uh, let me point out that when you are confronted over sin, confess it even if the other person is 95% at fault. And you might say, well, wait a minute. If I confess to the 5% I'm at fault, then they're going to just get off the hook. I just know the way they act. Don't worry about it. God can deal with them. Don't, don't make your conscience be, become bad just because their conscience is bad. You need to deal with that. And then with the speck or the beam or whatever it is that's in your own eye taken out, then you can resume the confrontation. And you can say, okay, yes, I do confess that. That was wrong. I should not have done that. But that does not let you off the hook. You need to deal with this issue. And uh, so with a clean conscience, you can continue uh, dealing with them. Uh, Some people value their pride so much they wouldn't confess their sin if their life depended on it. Another trick of the conscience is to downplay either the seriousness of the sin or their own responsibility in the sin. Well, I, I admit that I did that, but you know, I was really tired. I didn't sleep well last night, as if that justifies the sin. Uh, or, you know, I, I did that, but you did something that's far worse, and they begin to talk about that, as if because somebody else sins that it's okay that I sin. Um, you know, somebody maybe lied and was uh, very, um, very slanderous in the way they treated somebody, and they, they will just, they'll, they'll say, well, yeah, I was, I was crabby because I, I, I didn't have a good uh, sleep or some other circumstance. Another form of ra- rationalization is minimizing the apology. What does it mean when a person says, well, I'm sorry that you misunderstood me to be saying such and such, and I apologize if you were offended? That's a meaningless confession. Because it's not, it's not admitting to guilt. You know, it said, you misunderstood me, and if you were offended, I apologize. Oh, I'm the magnanimous person because I'm willing to apologize even though you're the person who misunderstood and you're the one that was, should not have been offended. That's not a way of dealing with sin, and yet I hear it all the time. You know, uh, we need to, we, we need to, we'll look at that a little bit later on. Another form of avoiding responsibility is displacement kicking the cat, furniture, screaming at the children when you've been shown to be at fault. True repentance, it's got to be radical. Otherwise, we develop hypocrisy. Another shortcut is to compensate. You know, if I was caught lying about you, you know, what I might do instead of admitting to lying and dealing with the, 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 the issue biblically, I might, um, you know, later on give you a big, generous gift 
or I might uh, work my tail off for you on some day and feel better about it. Let me tell you something. That's works righteousness. That is not grace. That's not the way that we deal with sin. Um, so, point five says we need to learn to confess sin biblically. And so many people short-circuit the step and they never get real reconciliation. Even though they've apologized, they still feel guilty. And they wonder why. I've apologized. I've dealt with this sin. Well, there's probably a good reason. Until we have confessed fully and biblically, we're often going to continue to feel guilty because our conscience knows better. <laughs> our conscience knows. We've been making ourselves look a little bit better, even if it's incrementally. Our pride is somewhat satisfied. But the judge is just not going to stand for that because the judge knows that we're worse than what we have made ourselves out to be. And so half-hearted repentance does not cut it. Let me tell you a secret. Trying to minimize our guilt is just natural part of every human heart. When you get into a car accident, what's the first impulse of your human heart? Even if you're 100% at fault, first impulse is to... You know, see if you can't find some fault. You know, the other guy was driving too fast or uh, the fault is with the trees. You know, the trees were in the way. Uh, I mean, it's just like that's the natural thing. We're trying to minimize our guilt in this accident. Now, if that's true in the accidents, how much more so in the rest uh, of our lives? We've got to be on guard uh, against these things. And make sure that your children follow these steps, that you model it for them. When you've sinned against your children, confess fully and biblically like we're going to go through. First, agree with God and others that it was truly a sin. Now, if it was not a sin, don't admit to it as a sin. Okay? <clears throat> but, if you've exaggerated, confess it as a sin and say, you know, that was a form of lying and I'm trying to work on this and please forgive me for lying by way of exaggeration. Uh, or if uh, you've cut in to lying, because of selfishness and the Spirit brings conviction, confess to the sin of selfishness. Now, I think the judge inside is not going to be satisfied until you confess all. Now, you don't have to confess to everybody. You confess to those that you've wronged. And if you look at the outline there, it outlines wrong actions, attitudes, words, and motives. Show it as God sees it. Now, let me just give you a warning along these lines, and I should have put it in your outline. I ran out of time. But... Um, <coughs> The question comes up, what, what about thoughts? You know, do I confess thoughts to others? And I would say, generally speaking, no. You confess it if it comes out and it's actually wronged the other person. I had a, a lady that I uh, was a teacher, actually, in the school that I grew up in, and she was always confessing her thoughts to other people. And I remember one time, <laughs> I was, as a kid, kind of shocked, and she was confessing to this other person, you know, I feel bad, please forgive me that I thought you were ugly. And I was just thinking, well, you know, that was just in your head. You could confess that to God. It's not wrong, this other person. Now you've wronged them. You've got two sins, okay? And so you've got to be careful that you don't confess thoughts that have not uh, already expressed themselves. Now, if it has expressed itself, the case, you know... Here, here's a classic case. Young Christians, you know, a person finds himself lusting after another man or man after another woman and confesses that sin of lusting. Well, let's just say that other person is weak. That could just end you up into real trouble. The Scripture says no. Now, if you've actually expressed something wrong, you know, uh, in word or in deed, then yes, you need to confess it and you need to take somebody else with you in confessing that and you need to start building hedges to prevent that uh, from happening in the future. But I just want you to be careful about the, the confession of thoughts things. Okay, step C, ask forgiveness. And again, there's pitfalls here. Some people are almost demanding in the way that they do it. Now, it's true. God commands the other person to forgive you for the wrong that you've done against them, but you're not God, and you must not be demanding. You don't deserve forgiveness from the other person. You can ask for it, but not demanding. Now, let me explain the difference between asking for forgiveness and the two worldly counterfeits that are so frequently adopted. First counterfeit is to say, I'm sorry. Now, I'm sorry does not admit to guilt. A lot of people are surprised by that, but I'm sorry. You can look it up in the dictionary. I'm sorry does not 
in any sense or fashion does not admit to guilt. What I'm sorry is saying is I feel badly about what you've been going through. For example, especially in the South you hear this, but somebody's lost a relative and they'll say, oh, I'm so sorry that you've lost your relative. They're just saying, I feel pained about the pain that's in your circumstances. Now, saying I'm sorry can be a part of the confession process if indeed you are sorry. Now, what many parents do is they force their children to say I'm sorry when their kids aren't sorry. They don't feel bad in the least. And what you're doing is you're teaching them to be hypocrites, to say I'm sorry and they're not, they're, they don't feel badly. What you can force your children to do is to admit that they have sinned, that's something objective, to, uh, to do restitution, to repent of that sin, you know, and uh, to ask for forgiveness. They can do all of those, but don't make your children say, I'm sorry, or I feel badly, if they don't feel badly. But it can be a very appropriate part of repentance, but it's not admitting to any guilt. Now, apologizing goes a bit further. It admits to guilt, and the dictionary, uh, Webster's Dictionary defines it as an admission of being at fault and regretting an action. So that's good, <clears throat> but it doesn't go far enough because it doesn't ask the other party to do anything in response. You know, all you're saying is, I'm guilty, I'm at fault. And, you know, theoretically, the other party could say, yeah, I know you're guilty, and I'm glad you're admitting to it, and it just confirms in my mind you're a dirty, rotten scoundrel that I'm not going to have anything to do with. Now, usually when people apologize, the other people are gracious enough to extend forgiveness, but it's not really asking for forgiveness. Okay, do you see that? And uh, we, we, we need to make sure that, that we go all the way, and the biblical model is to repent and to ask for forgiveness. Asking for forgiveness not only admits to wrong, but it asks the other person to blot it out, to not hold it against you any longer, to not hold it over your head. It's asking for mercy. You know you don't deserve mercy, but if they can find it in their heart to forgive you, you're asking that they would. And God will deal with the other person if they refuse to forgive. God says he won't forgive them of their sins then. But you need to leave that to God. Maybe on another day or another week, if they're not forgiving you, you can, you can go to them and you can say, you know, I, I know that I've, I've hurt you, I've sinned against you, and I can understand why it's difficult for you to forgive me, but it just makes me feel so bad that we don't have this fellowship. Could you find it in your heart to extend forgiveness to me and not hold this against me? So you can continue to bring it up, but don't demand uh, petition. Okay. Perhaps you've done all of this and your conscience is still tormenting you. Here's another possibility that you can explore. Perhaps you've asked for forgiveness, but you have no intention of forsaking your sin. In fact, you're anticipating doing it the next time, uh, just not getting caught. Um, your conscience is going to know that, and it's not going to give you uh, any peace uh, whatsoever. The judge inside is not going to be satisfied until you're willing to turn from your wickedness. Let me give you a concrete example. You might think Christians don't do this. Let me tell you, they do it all the time. Um, a, a Christian widow in California had um, another Christian rob her of her um, her money, her retirement savings. She They were caught. She confronted them. They asked for forgiveness, and she said, yes, I freely forgive you. And she asked for her money back, and they said, well, since you forgave us, we don't have to give you the money back. Now, that's a total misunderstanding of the nature of forgiveness. They are saying, we repent but they're continuing to engage in the very sin that they've repented of, which means they've not repented, right? They're engaging in repeated re repetition of the same sin. Now, let's say that this person has already spent the $200,000 that he's robbed, and they can't pay it back. They could petition her, would you forgive us not only for the sin, but would you also forgive us for this debt that we owe to you? They could do that. She is not under any obligation biblically to pay them that 200, uh, you know, to forgive that debt. She is under obligation before God to forgive the sin and say, I'm not going to hold that against you. You pay this back and, and, and you know, we're going to bury it. But um, the scripture is very clear. And let me just read you uh, some examples that the conscience will not be satisfied until we forsake our sin. We turn from it. 
Second Chronicles 7.14, here's God's pattern. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. He's not going to forgive if there is no turning from their ways. Jeremiah 36.3, that everyone may turn from his evil way, that he may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Isaiah 55.7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now, the last missing ingredient that may account for your still having a guilty conscience is a failure to pay restitution. Scripture says if there was an accident, you didn't intend to do it, but there was an accident, you need to pay back 100% of what was in the accident. If it was something that was, well, let's just deal with that before we go on to the other. It's not a favor to the person uh, who has wronged you to just say, forget about it. It's not doing them a favor because this is one of the important steps of aligning your conscience in a way that it will have uh, a purity in its relationship to God and uh, to man. <clears throat> now, if it was a deliberate sin, you need to restore what was broken plus 25%, and I give you some of the other uh, uh, you know, amounts of penalty that are put on there. And again, God's not going to allow the judge inside of you to be happy until there is restitution that is paid. Uh, restitution is uh, not just for the good of the person wronged, it's for our good. It's part of the process of gaining a good conscience. <clears throat> and make sure that your children engage in this. Let's say that your children have have broken one of their siblings' toys, or they've, they've broke, maybe they've broken a window in your house. <clears throat> maybe it's beyond their means to be able to pay back that window, um, maybe even over the course of the year. You might have to pay for the bulk of it, but make sure that what they are engaged in by way of restitution is, is, is difficult enough that is sacrificial on their part. It's, it's got to be there or they're not going to fully, uh, fully develop. If you've slandered somebody, the restitution may not be able to be total, but you can at least do what you're able to do. You can tell all of the people who might have heard about this, look, I slandered this person, I told a lie. And that's going to be hard on your pride, which is good, but it's also going to be training the conscience. Now, some people are very, very half-hearted about restitution. They almost expect there's going to be forgiveness even though they've only partially paid. One author claimed that the IRS conscience fund once received a letter, and I couldn't find this letter, but it says, I can't sleep, my conscience is bothering me. Enclosed, find a check for $50. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the balance. <laughs> now, I don't know, that may be a total myth. It doesn't sound uh, very realistic, but you know, Christians do exactly that all of the time. They only half-heartedly give restitution, and then they expect everything's going to be okay. So if your conscience is still uh, troubling you, test and see if, if that's maybe what's at fault. Don't just test by how it feels. That's just too unreliable and subjective. Now, if you look at the end of your outlines, I give two tests that can usually reveal whether you've been deceiving yourself. Test the conscience vertically and horizontally. Vertically is up, so you're testing it against God. Horizontally, out, you're testing it against man. Paul said in Acts 24, 16... I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and man. Now, if your heart is too proud and too fearful to get things right with another man or another woman or child, then it's not right with God. Uh, we need to make sure that we're aligning it. Proverbs 28:13 says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. I remember my conscience just being tormented when I was uh, first in Bible school over a sin I'd committed two years ago. And I just couldn't get rid of it. Well, it was two sins. One was stealing potatoes in Bible school, I mean, in boarding school, because I was starving, hungry. Wasn't starving, but boy, I was hungry. <laughs> and the other was cheating on a math exam. And I thought, well, you know, it's just too hard to think of confessing those things to the people. But finally, I just said, I'll do restitution. I, I told them, I'll take the math, 
math course over again, but I want to be right with God, and I paid them more money than I had uh, stolen on the potatoes. And I forget why I was bringing that up, but covering sin. It's pride, usually, that gets in the way. So just let me just read the, the test. Tested horizontally with this question. Would I do this action if my friends knew about it? Am I willing to tell them about it? Now, even there, you can deceive yourself. So you should probably write in there an extra, an extra little statement. Well, I'll go ahead and tell them about it then. And immediately you might find your heart say, uh, maybe I'd better not. I, you know, it'd be okay to tell them. Well, why don't you tell them? Well, I don't know. But the actual doing of it may be the real test of whether you're, you're being honest with yourself. The next one tests whether you're uh, being honest with man. Test it vertically. Can I offer this action up to God in faith? Can I discuss it with the Lord without any sense of unease? I mean, just say to the Lord, Lord, I want to drink this, eat this, smoke this, or whatever it is. I want to do it to your glory. If you can't do that, you shouldn't engage in it. But you should be able to say that, right? That you can do it before the Lord. I, I, I remember when I was um, a kid arguing with my dad, and I was convinced, I had convinced myself that I was right, but my dad's habit was, well, why don't we pray about it, son? It always used to make me mad. Why don't we pray about it, son? And as soon as I would start praying, he'd have me start with the prayer. I just knew I was wrong. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, I, the Lord's looking at what I'm doing. And so the testing before God convinced me and solved the problem with man. So just use both of those tests. I think they should uh, help you out a great deal. True freedom comes when God smiles on our conduct and when the world can't make any accusation of lawlessness that will stick. Now, they'll try, but Peter's admonition is having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. He says they're going to misrepresent you, but look, if your conscience is right with God, they can shoot their arrows at you, they'll go right through, and they're not going to harm you. And that's the wonder of a good conscience. It can stand firm, even when others criticize. It can stand firm in the knowledge that God approves your conscience. And it's my prayer that God would approve your conscience, each and every one of you, and to him be the glory. Amen. Father God, we come before you. This is a difficult uh, issue many times that we wrestle with, having a conscience that is void of offense before you and man. And I pray that you would help us as we work on developing a pure conscience to do so with all of our might, uh, to do so by your strength and your power, the illumination that comes from your Holy Spirit. Try our hearts, show us of any wicked way that is uh, within us, and help us to be radical and ruthless about uprooting sin and putting it under the blood of Christ. Help us, Father, if any of us have hardened consciences, to uh, uh, find a resensitivity by your Holy Spirit as we uh, uh, seek to uh, engage in these principles we have looked at. And if we have overly sensitive consciences, help us, Father, to be instructed and to uh, be trained uh, and uh, to have consciences that uh, just live out with joy before your face and even before the criticisms of other people. And I pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.